Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very exciting episode of the show for you today. There's a lot going on in the market, aside from the SEC's crusade against Binance and Coinbase. We've seen, at the same time, institutional headlines. They almost bring me back to 2018, when we saw Fidelity and Back and RSX enter the market. Now we've got BlackRock making waves. Uh, and of course, just the question of what these assets are, which assets in this crypto world are we comfortable with? And I think we have the perfect guest who almost sits in the middle of of these two worlds in a sense. And that's Carlos Domingo, founder and CEO of Securitize. Well, Carlos, thanks for taking the time. Always, always good to see you, even though you're technically down here. I've got to look at the camera. Uh, but... I can see out of the corner of my eye. I'm just getting used to this new setup. So, I guess I guess we can start very basically. Um, you know, you're early friend of the show, but for listeners who maybe haven't been keeping up with everything that's going on at Securitize, what do you guys do and how's business? Hi, Frank. Thanks uh, for having me back again. It's been a few years, so I guess it was a uh, uh, do update uh, already. So, um, what we do is basically we focus on on one particular asset class, which are digital asset securities. So we deal with tokens that basically represent the beneficial ownership of a security, and we use blockchains, hopefully public blockchains, which is what we believe is the right thing to do, as the main ledger to be able to track the ownership of those securities, to move them around, to trade them, to do asset servicing in a much more efficient way than what happens in traditional capital markets. As that, we are a regulated entity, so we got one of the first, if not the first, transfer agent license from the SEC. We registered with them in July 2019. Subsequently, we bought a broker-dealer and an ATS, which now is a very popular thing after we've seen recently, that was approved uh, for trading digital asset securities and as opposed to other firms in the space. We actually are live for over a year. We trade eight different digital asset securities and and everything is is working well. Mm. So again, I kind of, I feel like this current environment isn't too similar or isn't too dissimilar from 2018 history rhymes. 2018 was a year where we saw these big institutions make announcements that didn't necessarily translate into um, massive um, initiatives or businesses. But, but but that was back when STOs were a big world, uh, word, uh, buzzword as well. So let's, let's talk about exactly what the landscape looks like today um are what assets are going to be securities and how like is it is the future um basically most of these cryptos are securities and they're going to have to get registered on and trade on something that's registered as a broker dealer um or is the market mostly going to be um stocks that trade on a blockchain and where is Securitize going to fall in in that sort of uh, new world order? So so far, we've been focusing on things that are securities, right? So we only tokenize securities. So we will work with an asset manager, let's say like KKR or Hamilton Lane or others, that they have a security that is managed in a non-digital way, if you want, with a lot of inefficiencies in terms of how they track who owns it, how they sell it, how they provide fractional ownership, how they do asset servicing, how they do you know, trading, secondary market trading, lending, et cetera. So, so our premise is that we'll work with any anybody that has a security that wants to basically digitize on the blockchain to get all these advantages of, you know, 
this ledger that is better designed for tracking and moving ownership, right? Which was the original concept of the of the Bitcoin ledger, if you want. I think that the, the debate in the industry now is what happens with these other tokens out there that have not been issued with intent of being securities, whether it's lawfully or unlawfully, because obviously there's different <laughs> cases there, um, and whether those some of those are securities, right? I think that in the broader sense of all the tokens out there, I think everybody agrees that you know there's a large percentage of them that are securities, even. Brian Armstrong, I saw it in some interviews that he said that they reject 90% of the tokens that they apply to list in Coinbase because they think they're securities. So I think there is a, a consensus that there is a lot of tokens out there that are securities because they are obviously investment contracts, right? They follow the three prongs of the Howey test. You know, there's an, it's an investment for money, which obviously Bitcoin is also an investment for money. Nobody buys Bitcoin for any other reason, just to invest. But the other two prongs is where the debate comes because it has to be, you know, in a common enterprise based on the work of others. And that's where the whole, you know, thing maybe falls apart a little bit in terms of some projects that, you know, they claim that being decentralized, there's no work of others that you can actually benefit from uh, for the price appreciation of the investment that you're doing. So, and I think that's where the line blurs a little bit in terms of what's security, what's not securities. Um, and I think that, you know, this is the, the if you've read the McHenry uh, draft bill that is in the Congress now being discussed, they do have an attempt to put some definition at the beginning of what's a sufficiently decentralized project. At what point in time, that's not security. Um, and then that's the debate in the industry. Current regulations actually don't don't have this concept of sufficiently decentralization, right? So if you read all these uh, emails about the Hinman speech, you know, the debate was like, well, sufficiently decentralization, what does that even mean, right? How do you measure that? And, and where do you put the line of, okay, you're sufficiently decentralized, you're not, to then assume things are not uh, securities, right? So. I think the SEC is taking the view that because this sufficiently decentralization concept does not exist in current regulations, then, you know, they're obviously falling under the Howey test and that therefore there are securities. What I can tell you is probably most of these projects were securities when they were issued because there was no network. Like some of the ICOs were called ICOs actually for a reason because they were kind of emulating an IPO and, and people were investing to make money and there was a clear leap defined team that was building something that took that money as a seed investment to build a network and issue the tokens in a centralized manner, et cetera. I think the debate is over time. If those projects become completely decentralized, then are they still securities or not? Bitcoin, I think, is the only one that is clearly not a security because he's never been, he's never done an ICO. It was not pre-mined. It's, it's difficult to point to towards somebody that's in charge of Bitcoin uh, as a, and the, the network itself is very decentralized, et cetera. I think that they're more from Bitcoin down to Ethereum than to other projects. That's where the line blurs about where the, the threshold of what's a security, what's not a security. And, you know, you have no problem trading securities because you got those requisite licenses. How does how does the SEC and different regulators here in the States, how do they view just tokenized assets? Is that something that they're comfortable with? I think so. I think tokenization, look, it's just a form of digitization if you want, right? So, you know, you have a lot of the large asset managers that have made very public statements towards supporting tokenization because they think that's kind of the next generation of asset management. If you think about how people manage assets today, especially in private markets, it's very inefficient, right? There's a lot of, you know, manual processes for subscribe to a security to basically wire the money, receive it. It's very poor liquidity because it's very difficult to trade those securities because you don't know who holds what. Lending doesn't exist for the most part. What was that process like? Um, not necessarily 
right now, but as you were, you know, getting that transfer agent license, what was the process like? Was it relatively straightforward? So we got the transfer agent license early in, we started talking to the SEC in, in early 2019. I think at that time, I think from my experiences interacting with the SEC over the years, they are a lot more knowledgeable today, um, both the, the commissioners, the chairman, the, you know, the staff, et cetera. So back then there was a lot more explanation about how these things work. I still, there's still, you know, more explanation needs to be done about what digital asset securities are versus other type of, uh, of digital assets. The transfer agent license is not a particularly difficult license to, to get registered for. It's difficult to operate it, but to get the license is not a huge regulatory hurdle. It took us like, I don't know, seven months or something like that. Um, but once we filed the registration in two weeks, we, we got it, right? So, and this is public records because you can go to the Edgar database of the SEC and see when we actually filed and when we actually, um, was our application was deemed effective. A broker dealer and an ATS is a different story. It's a much more the regulatory hurdle is higher. Obviously, you're selling securities or you're trading securities. So obviously, the, the type of investor protection uh, regulations and things like that is much more complicated. You're also a member of FINRA, so you need to interact with FINRA every time you want to do something with your license. So and then, you know, it, we bought the license actually in 2020. We didn't file for it, but we had to go through like a year process to be approved to settle the trades of our ATS following this three-step settlement process that the SEC put out in 2020. And every time we, you know, when people say they have a broker dealer on ATS, what people need to understand is that doesn't really mean anything unless you know what they're approved for. It's it's interesting because, I, I like Coinbase, for instance, like I'm pretty sure they have a broker dealer through that acquisition yeah. of Keystone. Correct. Why can't they do anything with that? Is, is that where you were getting at? Because I think that's an interesting question and something that well, doesn't make 100% sense to me. Yeah, I can speak for Coinbase. I, don't, I, I do know they have a broker yeah, of ideas. And, and obviously, when, when that happened, we were actually pretty happy because we thought, you know, Coinbase is going to trade, you know, these assets securities. And we didn't have a broker dealer at that time. And our view initially was we don't want to be a broker dealer in ATS because that's a very complicated and costly thing to operate. We just want to be a tokenization platform with a transfer agent, you know, layer on top of it to be able to manage securities and facilitate trading in other venues. And that's how we started. We started trading, you know, digital asset securities with ShareSports Digital, from Avalanche was there at that time. Then with uh, Open Finance Network, uh, we integrated with them and they were, you know, trading digital asset securities. Um, but that market never took off. I think that they there was not enough things issue as securities on chain for trading to be meaningful, right? And then the whole other problem, which is, okay, suppose that, I don't know, I want to mention any asset, but a particular crypto turns out to be a security. How do you even trade it on an ATS? That's something I don't even know how it works because, you know, if, if a token is something that can move around to any wallets completely freely, how do you keep track of the cap table? How do you know to whom you can actually send it or allow them to trade? There's no... These things were not issue of securities, right? So, so what exemption they follow or what registration they have. And so I don't think that anybody has an answer to that. I've seen these claims recently of my other firm in the space saying that they were going to trade digital assets on their ATS. I don't know how that works, to be honest with you. And I know. We're talking about um, this firm that came out of nowhere, Prometheus. Well, they've been around right? since a very long time. I've been obviously... In terms of, I guess, the headlines, though, but... Yeah, how do you, it's like- but They haven't done anything as far as I know, so they don't have a live ATS, so I'm not sure they understand how trading works, right? So I wouldn't, I, I remember a few months ago before they now became very 
you know, well known because of the congressional hearing and uh, and the approval for the special purpose broker dealing, which we can talk about in a second what that actually means. You know, those guys had a screenshot on their website saying, we're going to trade compound, Filecoin. And I was like, how did you trade those things on an ATS? Because those are have not been issued securities, right? So so how is that going to work? I trade on ATS, but then I can just send it to somebody else outside. How do they know, you know, who else is having the security, who controls the cap table? How do you do asset servicing if you need to? ATSs also have disclosure regimes. So every security that trades on our ATS has to follow something called the 3C211 rule of disclosures. So if you're not working with the issuer for those disclosures, what do you put there? So I, I don't know. I think that, yes, probably ATSs are the natural place for trading uh, digital asset securities, but the current digital assets that might or might not be securities are just not suitable for trading on an ATS the way they've been issued. So. Because it's, it's kind of like putting the the toothpaste back in the tube or the other way around. If <laughs> if it's if it's if it's something like, you know, let's say Frank Coin, um, and it's never been registered and there's no path to registration because there's a thousand, fifteen thousand Frank validators, how do you get them to register in a way that it would be compliant to then trade on ATS as part of as part of that special sort of exemption status that they have? Are there Parameters around which the registration process is almost tailor, tailored for crypto. Can you is do you have any insight into what this this sort of special designation looks like? So the special purpose broker dealer is something that was written by the previous commission at the end. I think it was December twenty twenty. So it was kind of like the last thing they did before leaving <laughs> uh, when Jay Clayton and Red Redfern were there. Um, I think it came like a thing in April two thousand twenty one, and then we've known of. Uh, firms that were trying to apply to get it, but nobody had actually got it. We we never applied for it. We we use our transfer agent to the custody of our ATS, and that's been approved by the by the SEC. So the special purpose broker dealer only gives you one additional uh, feature if you want for your broker dealer, which is to do custody of digital asset securities. Now, it, it, that's the only thing. Uh, our ATS is actually approved for trading, and we just don't do custody at the broker dealer of the assets. Period. So, and and by the way, there's like a, a nine other ATSs that have been approved as well. Now, the, the point is, you know, as you were saying, what do you do with a digital asset that has not been issued as a security when it turns out to be a security? Well, my, my view is it has to be, they have to go through some sort of decision process, right? So they, they'll have to, you will have somehow to onboard the investors so you know who they are, that hold the tokens. You'll probably have to reissue the token in a way that there is some sort of transfer restrictions control uh, for trading. So, so you make sure that when it, when the token moves from one wallet of an investor to another one, that's actually a, a transfer of the security, and therefore you need to control who is eligible to, uh, you know, hold those securities. Like if somebody is a sanctioned individual or somebody from North Korea, they can't hold securities, right? And then the other point that you were making is how do they turn into securities, right? Most securities today are either exempt securities, securities that have not registered with a regulator, and then they have some sort of restrictions in terms of how they trade and with whom, or registered securities. Which is like I don't know Apple shares, right? Apple is a I, Well, I thought of I thought of like another analogy that's only like a half perfect analogy, which is it's like a Hotel California ATS where you know no securities can come in, but no securities can really <laughs> go out. I don't know if that works, but you get what I'm getting at, right? Like, okay, but the, it should be the opposite, right? So the beauty it'd be, of it'd be the opposite. It should be the opposite. The beauty of digital asset securities as opposed to, let's say, traditional securities is that 
you know, traditional securities are, as you said, they are the Hotel California type securities. You issue, I don't know, JP Morgan issues this private security and then there's no simple way for, let's say, Morgan Stanley to validate that you actually own that security. Well, the blockchain and the and token gives you a way to basically validate that somebody actually holds the security, right? Because it should be treated as the, an irrevocable proof of ownership on a cryptographically secure ledger that that token only moves if you've sold it or if you, I don't know, trade it with somebody else, etc. So, and that should allow you theoretically to move these tokens around in an efficient way between different trading venues and broker dealers, as opposed to what happens in capital markets today. If you have a, bro- uh, a brokerage account with Robinhood and you want to move your, you know, securities to E-Trade, good luck with that. It's going to take you like two weeks <laughs> to do it, right? Theoretically, with the token, you should be able to get your tokens in your wallet, deposit them in some other venue and trading them. So. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it, right? Because even if 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 they had if if they were able to trade Filecoin as a crypto security, would that mean you could send from your wallet from your wallet Filecoin to your Prometheus brokerage account? That's how it works in our ATS. So in our ATS, you purchase a security, a token that is a security. And if you want to trade it on our ATS, you know, you'll have to come create an account with our broker dealer and go through KYC, AML process, et cetera, if you haven't done it before, and then connect your wallet. And then we'll need to buy, validate that, that you actually control that wallet. And then if you have a token there that is a security that we recognize and that we trade, you can deposit it into the omnibus wallet of our ATS and then trade it there. And if you want to take it out and trade somewhere else, you can just withdraw it into your wallet and put it somewhere else. And all these all these movements of these tokens is controlled with a set of uh, smart contracts on the on chain to make sure they are legal moves of the security, right? Because securities have, you know, even, even if it's a registered security, it still has restrictions about who can trade it. Like if you're a sanctioned individual or you're living somebody in a sanctioned country, you can't actually receive those securities or trade those securities. So, but the, the digital assets that we're discussing here, like say like Filecoin or Compound, there's these ones that Prometheum claimed that they were going to trade. They haven't been issued that way, right? They've been issued in, in a way that are completely permissionless. You know, anybody can hold it. As far as you have a wallet and chain, you can hold it. You can send it to anybody else. So how do you actually keep track of who holds what, which is some, something you need to do with securities? Have I have I been saying the name wrong this entire time? It's Prometheum, it's right? Uh, that's Prometheum. I've been saying Prometheus. I'm going to get fired. Let's, let's, <laughs> I have no, the, 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 the nameless uh, crypto broker dealer, um, that exists. I think they actually might be coming on the show. So this <laughs> that might be. It. Uh, I hope they don't listen to this one. Um, <laughs> question. So we've talked about like how confusing and how weird, um, the, or rather how wonky and weird the ramifications of a crypto being deemed a security are. Right? Because how do you register them? They're in a weird limbo zone. But one other question would be, what happens to everything that's built on top of that network? Like, it, it, you don't really have things. I guess you have things built on, like, Apple merchants are on Amazon, but it's not the same, right, where the sort of token and the network are so intertwined as a, as a sort of usable network. Um, so what happens with something like the 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 fund that was built or raised rather – on Polygon, if if Polygon's a security, what does that mean for that fund? It does. Have you thought through that? 
So, uh, as you can imagine, I've been asked that question <laughs> a lot recently. <laughs> so, the f- first, you know, I, I don't know if, let's say, uh, Matic ends up being a security. I don't know how do you actually trade. Uh, it will have to trade somewhere for us to be able to use it because we need Matic to run transactions on Polygon, right? Uh, so, so they'll have to they'll have to be a, a mechanism for these tokens to register. Probably reissue them, as I mentioned, because they can't be like 100% permissionless. They could be, you know, controlled by smart contracts in a decentralized way with some sort of on-chain identity, but you will have to keep track of who holds that. And then there have to be marketplaces where you can actually trade them, which probably ATSs are the natural place to trade them. And if you read them, I can rebuild the draft build. That's what they are. That's what they're saying, right? These things will trade on, on uh, securities, but they'll have to be reissued and bring back into compliance through a registration plus you know, onboarding of the existing holders of the of the security. Um, so, so you will not be able to trade uh, out of the blue. And and then yes, so for L1s actually it's a secure one, right? Because L1s you need to be able to purchase the token to be able to to use the L1. I think there's many other projects that have nothing to do with L1s that are probably clear cut in terms of this is a security and uh, and and you know you have to live with it. So I think for L1s is where things get more tricky. Yeah, very tricky. Um, so let's maybe walk through, um, sort of your, your goals for the next six months. What does the business look like and what are some of your priorities? So we, we're focusing on, uh, I think the, the, what, what you and I talked, I don't know, it was last time we, I was in the show in 2018 or 2019, which was the security token offerings. I think now it's what people refer to a real world assets, uh, and tokenization. But essentially what it means is the following. So you have an asset that today it's actually not digitized. It's not very accessible. It's not easy to purchase. It's not easy to trade. It's not easy to lend against or to borrow against, uh, et cetera. Then by the process of tokenization, which for the most part turns the asset into a security or the asset into already a security, let's say like a fund, then you turn that asset into a much more productive asset, right? Because suddenly it's easier to purchase it, it's easier to provide fractional ownership, it's easier to, you know, do redemptions or pay dividends, it's easier to provide some degree of liquidity through automating trading, and it's easier to borrow against it, right? So so that's where we're focusing on primarily on private capital markets. I think that's where the opportunity is. Public markets have their own set of problems, but I think there's so much infrastructure there that it's very difficult that you can tokenize Apple shares uh, and provide huge advantages, but private markets are completely you know, non-digitized. So I think that's where the opportunity is and where the asset managers, I think, recognize the opportunity. And this is why we love the deals with KKR, Hamilton Lane, or you've seen Larry Fink from BlackRock, very useful on the space. So I think that's the area where we're definitely focusing on. If you remember back in the 2018 cycle, a lot of the real world asset security token uh, hype cycle then was tied to real estate. What happened to real estate? Why didn't it work um, in the way that many people had had hoped? I think that the, the the reason why things didn't take off in the security token space, and because I've been through this cycle, <laughs> probably very qualified to do is, I think that the at first, it, we started in, we, we started the company in 2017 in November. And in 2018, we just had a, a simple tokenization platform. And then we didn't have a transfer agent. We didn't have a broker dealer. There was no like, you know, the license to be able to operate. So I think that the, the, the large, um, the guys that hold it, the assets that are valuable, uh, like the asset managers 
whether it's real estate or something else, were not entering the space because they didn't have regulatory clarity. And uh, I think that over the years, at least for this part of the space, these last securities, we've been getting this regulatory clarity. And we've been firms like ours, but others have got licenses to be able to operate. And this is why you've seen last year that, you know, many of these projects started happening, right? And then on the other hand, the the crypto people were focusing on, you know, the unregulated space. There was no appetite to get into something uh, regulated because, you know, regulation obviously adds friction, right? It's unavoidable. You have to follow rules. You have to do KYC. You have to have certain restrictions about who can participate or not in offerings. You have to do disclosures, right? The information memorandums and all the stuff doesn't exist at all in, in crypto, right? So I think that this time we probably have a confluence of, you know, the, the, the large financial service institutions and asset managers entering the space because they start seeing the, the regulatory clarity and also crypto people waking up to, we probably have to do something more productive from blockchains that issue FTT tokens or Dogecoin or things like that. And, uh, and that implies putting real world assets on chain to make them more productive. It, what, what real world asset do you think is most fine tuned for trading or sort of moving on a blockchain, trading on a blockchain? I think I would say that anything that, so look, if you have a, if you have a startup and you raise money from 10 investors, uh, you can use Carta and, and you probably don't need tokenization. Right? It's not going to add any value to you. I think the assets that want to be democratized and therefore you have to, you want to put them in the hands of you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, that then the, the, the whole process of how do I manage this complexity and how do I manage all these uh, people starts becoming a problem. And that's where tokenization actually helps. Because as I mentioned, you can think of it as digitization. And then assets that also have asset servicing needs, they need require some secondary market liquidity or they require some uh, lending or they require some emissions in a more efficient way or pay dividends or do dividend reinvestment processes. And the, the more complexity there is, I think the more suitable for tokenization is because tokenization helps you automate those things, eliminate uh, reconciliation errors, or eliminate you know manual uh, you know processes, uh, etc. When when someone who's maybe like an LP in um, let's say the Hamilton Lane Fund, what does the UX experience look like for for maybe looking at? your holdings is it it's an interesting question i've never really thought about it but is it is it similar to an existing sort of lp portal or um does it look more like a metamask wallet like what are we what are we looking at here no it's more like an lp portal right so in our and it's just abstracted away like is it just so we try to abstract away as much as possible the complexity of a blockchain because i think that's another barrier of entry if you want not everybody knows how to use metamask but um in our case obviously because those tokens are securities before we actually allow you to participate and buy an, an lp position on a hamilton lane fund you have to do kyc and ml and that, that process you create an account with us it's called a securitized id and we have you know tons of those uh, in the platform and then that securitized id is where you can attach your wallets and then whatever securities you've purchased are going to show up there with the performance uh based on the app of the fund or based on the secondary market trading if they trade, etc. So you see a little screen with all the, your assets and your performance. Like you see, I don't know, a Coinbase account where you see your Bitcoin, your ETH and something like that and and the performance over time and the current price if there is uh, uh, pricing or in the case of funds that don't trade yet, the enough of the, of the fund. So, and then the tokens basically sit in your wallet, right? But if you open your wallet and your MetaMask, you're not going to see much and, and less 
MetaMask is picking up the price from somewhere to show you the, the value of the holding. So what does interest look like going into the next like six months? How strong is the the pipeline? We have a very strong pipeline with large asset managers. I think that's where the opportunity is. Uh, I think that the fact that we we were pioneers in the space getting KKR, which I believe was like the first yeah. um, large asset manager that entered. What was that? What was that deal like? What did you What did deal. you have to do? <laughs> so I we met the KKR team back in 2018. At that time, they were interested in exploring tokenization, even though it was very early days, and they reached out to Coinbase actually. Um, and we have good relationship with Coinbase team. They they invested in our CSA, and then the Coinbase team basically sent them to us, saying these guys are interested in tokenization and Coinbase was focusing on other things at that time. Um, and then we started the relationship with them, but it was very early days. We didn't have a transfer agent. We have a broker dealer, we have an ATS. They didn't know what they wanted to do. So, but over the years, it's been a process of staying in touch with them and keeping them updated of the progress we and the industry were making until everything became kind of fall into one place. And, and then we, we decided to, to release the, the project. And then subsequently, as you know, we've done Three funds with Hamilton Lane that has kept us busy, but we have a good pipeline and you'll see some, you know, good names being announced in the next, uh, you know, weeks, months, uh, that are also entering the space using us as the, as the tokenization and, and the broker dealer and the transfer agent provider. And what are they like? What are the savings and efficiencies that translate from? Well, that's a good doing point. it this way. <laughs> it, sometimes it's hard to, to quantify because asset managers don't even know how to kind of qualify that thing. But I can tell you that most of them will have, first there's, there's two kinds of inefficiencies, right? Inefficiencies on the asset management side of things, of you know, reconciliation errors, uh, that they made a mistake about who holds what. There's also issues with um, potentially, um, okay. <laughs> my daughter and my dog, they just uh, appear here. So. No worries. They're, they're ready to get in the conversation. You're going to be in the podcast. Like, I want to talk about, I want to talk about inefficiencies in private illiquid markets. <laughs> so, so there's inefficiencies on the, on the way they manage their securities on their backend. But then there is also inefficiencies that translate towards the investor experience, right? So investors sometimes, you know, if you go to, I don't know, one of the warehouses where it's Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan, you know, they have very high minimum thresholds because, and then you have to talk to somebody on the phone if you want to purchase a security. It takes like a few days to show up in your account. Then you have to wire money. If you want to do a redemption, you have to notify them. And the redemption happens like whatever hours or days after. Uh, if you get dividend paid, they don't get paid immediately. Uh, all those inefficiencies um, are what this technology solves both. But then on top of that, there is new stuff, right? Like, you know, if you today you go and buy a security from Morgan Stanley on a KKR fund, you're not going to have any secondary market liquidity. You're not going to have any ability to borrow against that asset, period. So those are like things that actually not just provide more efficiency, but actually enhance the security, make them more, it makes it more productive, right? Uh, as an asset class, which I think this is where the exciting thing happens. Not, not just efficiencies are fine, but new, new stuff is more interesting than, than just pure efficiencies. And I think that's where the market has not manifested yet because we need an ecosystem of these things uh, but that's where things will get more interesting in the future yeah like when can i you know stake these assets to borrow um you know usdc to buy some esoteric coin L lending is actually um an interesting case right because the De DeFi has basically solved lending in a very elegant way right so you have the token that means you actually own the security uh, in this case, or, or the asset. And then if you want to put it into 
you said as collateral, you have to basically move it into a smart contract. And that moment in time, you can't actually rehypothecate the asset, right? Because it's been moved away from you. So you don't actually control the asset anymore and, until, you know, when you receive the loan, you can then return it. And those issues that seem stupid, this is the reason why lending doesn't exist in some asset classes, because proving the provenance of the asset, you actually own what you say you own, making sure it's not, it's not encumbered, that you haven't borrowed twice in two different places, making sure there is a way to seize the asset if you fail to repay the collateral and then liquidate it. All those things are why some things are hard to borrow against. And those the token model kind of solves and the DeFi protocol solve this problem for also other assets, not just necessarily magic beans on chain. So. <laughs> It's nice having those magic beans. Um, <laughs> yes, until they go to zero, and then <laughs> and, and until until they go to zero, then they're not so magic. Um, Carlos, thanks so much for taking the time. No, thanks, Frank, for having me again here. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure as well. And we will be back again, back to you with another great guest. Have an awesome day.